it probably was and remains my toughest challenge to date because it was a, an extraordinary um, mission to, to take a, a, a prototype flying car that never never seen the, the light of day before, uh, learn how to fly it, then recruit a team to, to cross uh, the Sahara Desert. Welcome back or welcome to the Ordinary to Extraordinary podcast where we look to unpack the human factors of those who have rewritten the script. My name is David Hindle, and I'm joined by co-host Neil Jeffers. Neil, not going to lie, first guest today, very excited by who we have coming on. Hey, Dave, I am too. This is going to be great. This is a chap called Neil Lawton. He was a Royal Marine commando, was in the SAS, and has now led many expeditions all over the world. He's climbed Everest five times. He's been to the North Pole, the South Pole, and, and done loads of things. I'm sure we can learn a huge amount from him. Honestly, I was really into the whole Mount Everest climbing expedition thing several years ago, and I read a book and saw Neil's name mentioned and saw pictures of him. And so, to be honest, I was very excited when I learned that you knew him and you had taught him to fly helicopters and that he had agreed to come on our show today as our first guest. Well, you know, I'd kind of lost track of him, actually, and hadn't, hadn't spoken to him quite a while. And he's just uh, invited me to the launch of his brand new book, which is an incredible read and has lots of good lessons in it. So it's only just reconnected him as we'd started this podcast. And, and I just thought, this is going to be the perfect guest for the show. And, and I think we can learn a lot about uh, his approach to fear, teamwork, etc. It's going to be great. Perfect. I agree. I think uh, lots to learn. Looking forward to this chat. So I guess without further ado, our first guest, welcome him to the show, the Ordinary to Extraordinary podcast, Neil Lawton. Leaving school in 1982, Neil followed in his father's footsteps and joined the military. He spent two years as an officer in the Royal Marines before leaving and starting a number of successful companies. But not finished with the military, he then joined the Reserve SAS and spent a few years as Troop Commander. From there, he's been non-stop exploring. From the North Pole to the South Pole, from flying cars to racing penny farthings, and of course, climbing Everest five times. It's going to be great to find out what else he's been up to, and it's my huge pleasure to introduce Neil Lawton. Hello, gents. Great yeah. to meet you. Good evening, Neil. Thanks for coming on. Hey, listen, we always start with a few random questions. They're quick-fire questions just to get us talking. Random as they might be, here we go. So, manual or automatic? Manual. Oh, quick-fire. Like, oh, I like, the, I like, I like the accuracy yeah, and the speed there. We, all have a split, we always have a split between the Americans and the Brits, so that uh, <laughs> goes on as always. Good. There's a lot more indecision normally. That was clear-cut and straight to the point. Love it. I get, I get a sense of this chap. He's going to be pretty quick at all this <laughs> stuff. Right, here we go. Next one. Hereford or Poole? Hereford, of course. Oh, I thought you'd have allegiances down down south as well. Two years in the Marines, 12 years in the Hereford. Yes, fair enough then, fair enough. Good, we'll dig into that a little bit more. And finally, North Pole or South Pole? Well, now that is a tricky one. A few. <laughs> uh, <what laughs> with um, North Pole. Why is that then? Polar bears... Uh, 
shifting, moving ice, more challenging environment, more dynamic environment, just as beautiful as the South Pole, um, but uh, there's a lot more going on and uh, a trickier, uh, more challenging environment. Well, excellent. And I, need, I know you like a challenge, so so there it is. Is it challenging because it's windier and, and colder, or what's the, where's, where's the environmental difference? Uh, well, that's a long answer, but uh, essentially, um, North North Pole, you've got um, wildlife as well as Arctic uh, conditions, and in Antarctica, you have yes on the on the periphery, uh, the peninsula, you've got wildlife, but interior, up hmm. the mountains and near the South Pole, there's no life, apart from American scientists. And we wouldn't we wouldn't count American scientists as uh, proper human life, would we? <laughs> <laughs> bizarre we're looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that and we really should figure out how you got to where you are neil because we talk about ordinary to extraordinary we think about people who, who have started as, as just doing their normal thing and gone on to do some incredible things so could you just um take us back a little bit maybe guide us through from from Gaul onwards about how you got to roughly where you are now yeah so weirdly uh i have my strap line for one of my companies is ordinary to extraordinary yes um, well that's a, a bit of a reflection actually on my journey and so it's really appropriate that you're chatting to me about how i go or how i've been uh from ordinary to ex occasionally extraordinary um and you guys have done the extraordinary i've just uh, tinkered on the edges but um you know i was a, a real underperformer at school if i if i'm honest and i look back i i had a, a, a torrid time didn't really enjoy my schooling I got into a trouble a little bit, was, uh, you know, given eight with the cane for uh, organizing a, a massive <laughs> rave. Um, did actually get expelled. I, I set the uh, chemistry lab on fire. Um, and, um, you know, I was pretty hopeless academically. In fact, I do remember what my um, geography teacher uh, wrote a, a report and I was sort of last in class, last in exams. And um, he said in the handwritten report at the uh, the bottom of the, the page he said uh, neil is trying very hard but achieving very little <laughs> and um as i occasionally tell uh, my children um the problem for me was that geography was my best subject <laughs> well if your geography teacher is still around you should take that report and show him now what you've been up to because that's uh, well, next level yeah funnily enough um i did bump into an old um, school headmaster and at, at the same school who did predict that I would get no exams whatsoever and back to, back year me a whole year. So all my mates went up, up, up into the senior school and I had to do another year in the junior school. It was pretty torrid. But anyway, um, suffice to say, I struggled academically. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure we'll reveal in this little uh, discussion, you know, what's important is, is your mindset and your determination and you're just finding a way to succeed and you know just to give you an ex example the you know one of the things that one needed not only to fly a helicopter as you will know is a modicum of of maths uh, and i failed maths two or three times but you know what i did is i i realized that i wasn't it wasn't working with the you know the teacher that i had in the the b set um i needed the a set teacher and so i went looking for him i was in uh, you know, the worst state, uh, I, I scored the a U, which in old money <laughs> uh, is the lowest grade that you can get in an exam in GCSE O-level. And um, I realized in order to, to 
realized my dream of joining the Marines, not not only in you know the, in the ranks, but actually as an officer, one needed mass O level, and that was my that was going to be my Achilles heel. So I went looking for the most senior, experienced maths teacher in in the school, and I, I went and asked him if he would help me, and he did. He gave me private tuition. And on my third attempt, I managed to scrape a, a pass. And that's what I'm talking about, is actually, you know, finding a way to succeed. Well, Neil, this is going to be a theme. I, I, I'm suggesting this is going to be a bit of a theme. But at that age, you could have either just said, you know, enough's enough. You know, I'm not going to be able to do this. You had a motivation. You know, father, your father was in the Royal Marines. Is that the sort of, is that where the motivation came from, to, to follow in his footsteps? To, to You're obviously very driven, even at that early age. Where did that come from? Yeah, there's an acronym called MAD, uh, which I like to use. A MAD is, uh, yeah, very appropriate, but a MAD is motivation. Uh, the A is action. And uh, the D is determination. And I didn't want to follow my dad's footsteps. I mean, I, my dad was brilliant. He was in the Navy, but um, I didn't want to, I, you know, I got seasick. I hated the rolling <laughs> about and throwing up over, over the side of a ship or a yacht. But um you know, I had an experience through my dad that uh, gave me the motivation uh, needed to, to to become a Royal Marine. And, um, you know, I followed that through from the age of 12. And I think that probably saved me uh, or saved my sanity at school whilst I was having a miserable time there. I had that overarching big picture, luckily, in, in knowing what I wanted to do when I left the wretched place. I guess that's the key, just knowing exactly what you wanted to do. I guess that's uh, the motivation for most people. Where did you go from there? Yeah, so um, I, I left school and then, you know, waiting for my call-up papers for the Marines. I went traveling. I did. I kept myself busy. I, did, I decided that university, more education was not going to be for me. Uh, so I went off traveling around the world and, uh, you know, went looking. I think my first little escapade was uh, for a, uh, a chap called Colonel John Blashford Snell. And he sent me, uh, he got me a ticket on a cargo ship going, across two oceans, uh, the Atlantic and Pacific, through the Panama Canal, and then down to Papua New Guinea. And he tasked me with going to find in a remote island uh, called Daru off the north coast of Australia, uh, Papua New Guinean territory, a pretty remote island. And apparently there was a fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> and I had to go <laughs> scuffling around in the bushes trying to find it. Unbelievable. Papua New Guinea was a pre not a friendly place at some time. So well, I, I think in, back in this was like 80, 82, 83. And um, I think there were still, um, you know, cannibals uh, around Papua New Guinea at the time. So I was probably quite lucky to escape the pot. Unbelievable. Did you find uh, the, the reported fire-breathing dragon? No, I didn't, unfortunately. But I was really intrigued <laughs> by the weekly delivery by um, fishing boat of, of uh, the Foster's tinned lager. And the fact that the locals all swarm down to the port to to get their two cans worth uh, every week, and within an hour of the delivery, all the islanders were off flat on their backs, absolutely legless, on two half cans of of lager. It was extraordinary. And well, hey, what age, what age were you at this point then? How old were you when you were doing this? Eighteen. Unbelievable. Okay, that's maybe started. I heard that uh, your first adventure was maybe even before that. Were you, were you 13 and a canoe adventure before you even started those bigger adventures? 
Yeah, so I think I, I mean I was always quite um, adventurous. As I say, uh, academia wasn't my thing, but um, I was quite. Um, I mean, I like to think that sport and travel and uh, adventure were, were my three sort of key key passions. Um, pretty much all, all all the way through since uh, an early age. And yeah, I do actually recall uh, organising a, a three day canoeing trip with a schoolmate, and um, it was on our local river, but it was you know in in the middle of the countryside. Uh, the River Stour, I think, if from memory. And, um, you know, we ha I had a tent, sleeping bags, we had the canoe. And, um, you know, we had three days traveling down a river on our own, age 13. Uh, to this day, I have no clue whether my dad was following in a car, but as far as <laughs> we were concerned, we, we were on our own and didn't get disturbed by adults. And we just had two or three days of uh, wildness and, and independence. And it was fabulous, you know. Good for you. Fantastic. Hey, so Neil, continue with the Marines then. So when leaving the Marines, uh, uh, as you did, what was the, what was the uh, reason for that? And uh, where did you go from there? Well, that was a disaster. Um, you know, I, I had signed up uh, for a career, literally, you know, 16 plus years. Uh, I passed the commando course. Um, I, you know, it was pretty fit, aged uh, 18, 19. Um, but my dad was struggling and suffering from uh, throat cancer and, and uh, you know, right the way in the middle of my my time at the training center in, in, um, in the Marines, uh, he died. And I don't know, it was it was just one one reason why I, I was ultimately, you know, lost a bit of confidence, I think, lost a bit of self-esteem and just focus kind of went. And I think it was spotted. Um, you know, it didn't help that there were, you know, there were 5,000 applications for, for 15 places. Um, and uh, we had like 26, 28 people on the course. So they, they were at liberty to get rid of the weakest members. And unfortunately, I was just one of the, the six weakest that they got rid of, um, you know, before um, before the end of the, the, the program. And um the old interview without coffee was pretty grim. Uh, you know, you set your sight from the age of 12 on this thing and, you know, you passed the commando course, you were wearing the green berry and then, you you know, you weren't going to go and serve um, for the rest of your career. So it was a, it was a real um, kick in the, in the kidneys, if I'm honest. And um, I had a, a couple of years pretty depressed in, you know, I went to London, didn't know anybody signed up for um, like a YMCA, which is a kind of a hostile accommodation. Uh, I did a three-week sales training course for uh, office equipment selling door-to-door, -door, uh, no commission. If you didn't sell anything, you didn't earn anything. Did that for a couple of years and put some money in the bank, sure, but I was pretty miserable. And then, um, you know, whilst I was thinking about my next move commercially and, and corporately, uh, the 10th anniversary of the Iranian embassy siege occurred. Um, you know, literally... Um, you know, a landmark occasion, which you might remember, guys, but, um, you know, these mysterious soldiers dressed in black and, uh, you know, respirators and submachine guns storming a, a, a West, uh, West End uh, embassy. It was that, you know, the story of, of um, legends and, and James Bond. And, and um, there was a bit of press about, uh, about that, that on the 10th anniversary and, Literally, um, message got out to the the, the young, uh, mostly males, obviously, uh, that uh, they were recruiting. So I lined up with two thousand other likely lads, uh, thinking, "Let's try and get into the special air service regiment." 
Neil, one of the things that really strikes me about the story you're telling now and, and, and what I've learned about you from, from reading is this amazing self-belief and confidence which has just launched you and allowed you to do all these great things. And this is, to me, one of those fantastic examples. I mean, you've, you, you just described you know, the, your experience there with the, with the Royal Marines and um, then this opportunity or this, this right, that iconic image of the uh, SAS on the, on the embassy that's, you know, that we still see that photograph from the newspaper. It's still, it's still sort of in my memory now. It was that famous. Where, did, where do you think this, this, true, this self-belief and confidence, because applying to the SAS, I mean, that in itself is a, uh, an amazing thing in, in our imaginations, right? It's the boy's own dream, the SAS, the Special Air Service. It's a bit like the Navy SEALs over here in, in the United States. But to go through that selection, I think that's, what, six months, one of the hardest selection courses there is in the world in itself just seems to me to be could be so daunting was it the confidence of youth or was there something else inside you that was either natural or that you had learned to give you the strength to sort of take that on no that's a good question i think um i mean the first thing i i would say is i i wouldn't naturally believe that it's it's about the self-confidence i think it's if i reflect on it it's more a question of uh the excitement of the opportunity and just the, not having fear of failure, not not mm -hmm. actually worrying about uh, you know what happens if I if I fail, and you know it's just curiosity, it's a little bit of courage, it's uh, energy and enthusiasm, and it's you know when you get stuck in making a decision to go for it, it's it's throwing your energy and determination and um, and resilience and and just sticking by, you know. Of course, I had a couple of years of experience. Um, shooting rifles and leaping out of helicopters in the Marines. And so, you know, I had, uh, you know, a, a pretty good grounding in, in what it was like to be a soldier. Of course, Special Forces um, Army is very different and you're learning every single day. A bit like learning to fly a helicopter. It's, it's seat of the pants, um, excitement, terror in equal measure. And, you know, just accepting, you, you know, what uh, happen is happening to you uh, and really giving it your best shot, and not worrying if um, you know you're gonna you're gonna fail, uh, and just giving 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 the best that you can. W was there a time during selection for two one SAS that you ever had doubts or feelings like I may not get through this, or was was the mindset absolutely crucial to your success in getting through this sort of we hear about this never quit attitude? Um, maybe just breaking things down into I'm not going to worry too much about the big picture. We're just going to go week to week and um, put a series of successes together. And then before you know where you are, you're three months in, you're four months in. Can you just let us into your mindset a little bit about when you went through that, whether there was doubt or in your mind, was it always like, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to get there come hell or high water? Look, I'll tell you a secret. Uh, doing selection for the SAS, uh, at any given minute, you have doubts as to whether you're going to make it because they have a technique of, of literally you get to a checkpoint and you're 30 seconds late after 12 hours on the hill and you're binned. You're, 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 you're in the back of the truck on, on the wagon back home. And so um, if, if you spend your time worrying about, you know, am I going to make it, then you probably, probably won't. The thing is, 
the key, I think, to, to, you know, big challenges and certainly, you know, selection was one of those is um, just, I mean, not never, never giving up is just giving it your best shot and having that determination not to be the one that goes, I can't do this anymore. You just keep going until you're either dead or you're, you know, you're lying prostrate and unable to move. And I think that kind of determines what they're looking for. And I showed that and, yeah. and that was kind of a little secret to passing the selection process. It's, it's just exceptional. You know? it's, I think I think that's one of the things. And I, I guess that's where you're, you're adventuring, meeting those sort of people, doing those sort of things led you to start your adventure. What was your first adventure? Was it, was it while you were in the SAS or, or was it after that? No, I mean, really, I've been uh, following my passion, the, the travel, sport and adventure right from, you know, from right the way through my life, you know, from that uh, 13 year old uh, adventure, three days in a canoe, you know, all the way through my uh, commercial career, I took time. Uh, it was a, you know, a non-compromised situation to, to say, look, I, I need two uh, two trips or whatever it is a year uh, off doing these adventurous things. And, you know, you look back and you think, how, how have I managed to uh, get all this stuff done and, and visit all these amazing places around the world and with such, you know, amazing, great people. Um, and it's just the fact that you've, you've made a plan. Um, you've been doggedly determined to, you know, not compromise, not, not make excuses because of work, because of family, because of money. And you just make things happen. And, and I've got a bit of a knack of coming up with an idea, um, you know, going off and finding uh, resources, money, sponsorship to, to make it happen. Sometimes not even confirming that before, you know, committing to the project. Um, you know, many examples, uh, even now, just putting a date in the diary, coming up with an idea, tweaking it with a bit of help from friends or experts. And then and, and then selling and recruiting and, and getting people to join you on these 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 missions and um, you know one thing leads to another. This great thing about confidence and uh, and passion and energy and enthusiasm is that people want to join you on 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 that journey if you're because it's attractive, isn't it? Nobody likes a misery guts. So that's a that's really interesting and uh, that confidence and that passion and that energy. Do you think that's what in your early days? before you became so renowned and and famous really for your incredible adventures. But in the early days, if we take it back to perhaps one of your, maybe the first expedition to Mount Everest or the second expedition uh, back in the 90s, obviously those trips were very expensive, required a lot of infrastructure, a lot of support. But here you are, a young man, you need to generate that sponsorship and that support behind you. What tips would you have what could you share with us to allow people to be able to go to approach how do you become successful in gaining that support and that sponsorship is it is it the preparation that you put together and how organized you look when you make a pitch is it the enthusiasm or the energy that you provide what secrets would you have to other people because many people have great ideas but the few people have great ideas that translate that into action into an event and so what's the differentiator that takes somebody with a, a great thought of, I'm going to do this in a year to actually doing that and getting the support and the buy-in from other people? Yeah, so I think um, there's no real real secrets other than the combination of all the things that you've mentioned, Dave. You know, uh, you have to have 
uh, a good idea. You have to have, um, uh, you have to be passionate about it. You have to promote it, sell it. You have to find the resources and the mon money to make it happen one way or another, either by the people joining you, uh, contributing or finding, finding sponsorship. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you've got to be uh, savvy of brain and mind and flexible of leadership and uh, talent to, you know, keep the team together. The famous story of the South African team on Everest in 96 that fell, a, fell apart on three days into the trek into base camp. Uh, and, and all the best climbers quit because they just couldn't live with the awful leader. Um, mm -hmm. No names, no pack drill, of course, but he was a tosser. Um, <laughs> and um, you know you've got, you've you've got to manage all these things. So um, to answer your question, I have uh, for your listeners uh, maybe one one tip, and uh, and I use it occasionally when speaking to like kids at school, thinking about this stuff. And and that is uh, an acrostic word called Vista. So Vista is obviously um, in the dictionary. Its um, its term is uh, ambition and a pleasing view. One of which uh, Neil has every every day uh, through his front window cockpit of, your, of the helicopter. <laughs> it's very true. I do. It's quite it's quite appropriate. So Vista stands for uh, vision. You've got to know where you're going, what your end destination is, and what your 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 passion is, what the goal is. Um, I is innovation. So what can you bring to the to to the project that is different, that is slightly innovative, that's uh, creative. Um, the S is strategy. So that's all about the, the planning and the operational, uh, you know, resourcing to, to make it happen. Uh, the T is team. Who's on your team? Are they the right people? Uh, do they share your values and, and, the, and, and, and the mission? And, and then A, uh, you will know this it is, of course, attitude. Of course it is. That's excellent. That's, that's, uh, Love it. I had never heard that. And that's really, really well, I made it up. That's why you wouldn't want it. <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's, it's my IP, but I give it to you with love. Well, we <laughs> shall we shall guard it with passion as Thank well. you. Yes. Hey, listen, on, on the teamwork, Neil, whenever you talk about uh, teamwork and team building, controlling teams, looking after teams, selecting the right people, uh, making sure they follow you, etc. Quite often, use the sky car as an example of having a, a big challenge and then having quite a complex team doing lots of different, lots of different people doing lots of different th things to achieve that single aim of getting that car all the way to Timbuktu. But what can you tell us about that? Your leadership style, how did that work out so well with all the challenges trying to get across the the, the streets of Gibraltar, etc. It sounded particularly difficult, I thought. <laughs> Well, your listeners probably have no clue what we're talking about right now, but um, very briefly... That's why you're here, to tell us. <laughs> very briefly, um, uh, you, you know, uh, not as in the same league as you, but I but I have been a pilot since I was about uh, 22, I think. Uh, got learned to fly paragliders, paramotors, um, and, you know, trikes. And uh, and then thanks to you, Neil, uh, helicopters, and then got a fixed-wing fixed license and... Uh, flown various other sort of crazy contraptions, mostly open cockpit stuff. And um, we were on Everest in 97 with Bear Grylls doing the world's highest paramotor flight. And in the tent afterwards, over a cup of tea, just mulling over our, you know, successful uh, new world record for the highest paramotor flight. <laughs> the engineer of um, the technology, Gilo Cardozo, great, great guy, um, said, 
you know, to all three of us in the tent, wow, I think I, n I can now realize my dream of designing and building the world's first road legal flying car. And Bear just rolled his eyes and gone, oh, no, I've had enough. And, and, and I, you know, with my <laughs> pilot's passion, um, kind of asked a few questions, including how much to make the, the first prototype gylo. And in that yellow tent over a cup of tea, uh, he gave me a, an eye-watering uh, six-figure number. And for the, for, for the life of me, I have no idea why I said, um, I will be your first customer. <laughs> and then I realized straight afterwards that um, after you know working out how I was going to find and fund 150,000 pounds, the, the the idea came to me that we had to do an extraordinary journey in order to raise that kind of profile money support um and and yeah just obviously do a, an extraordinary journey um with said prototype flying car and yes you're right neil it probably was and remains my toughest challenge to date including pretty much everything else that we've mentioned so far because it was a, an extraordinary um mission to to take a, a a prototype flying car that never never seen the the light of day before uh, learn how to fly it then recruit a team to to cross uh, the sahara desert not least of which the other eight thousand kilometers from london to timbuktu as well and, and a couple of straight st stretches of water and uh, of course you can imagine the complexity of that mission in itself and keeping not only myself but 12 friends alive crossing the empty quarter of the sahara desert <laughs> i think that's the bit i'm really keen to dig into because you know you had a doctor a specialist in desert a special driver the guy who drove the big truck around to follow you guys around and every now and then you know the, the car would land badly and i remember i think it was gylo crashed into a tree yep. that wrote off the front end of it so to get the guys back on the same page and say, no, we can still do this, you know, the, the end, how, how did you, how did you continue to keep that team on track and motivate them to, to get all the way to the end? Yeah. So it's, it was uh, tough at times, you know, I won't, I won't deny it. Um, you know, it was a, it was a stiff mission, 46 days, 10,000 kilometers operating in, in pretty tough conditions environmentally you know crossing the desert in 50 degrees centigrade or whatever um not knowing you know where you know where on the planet really we were in, in this sort of maze of of uh, orange sand dunes and um i think there was two things that i did as a as a leader on on that trip and and you know well it's three things one you've got to make it fun you've got to Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it has its difficulties. But as long as you're having fun, as long as everyone in the team is having fun, that's a good mm. start. Second point was, um, you know, religiously, uh, you know, we'd had a tough day. But at the end of the day, we would, I would make sure that we had time as a team to get around and build a fire, to put some popcorn on, to get uh, a secret stash of, um, you know, beer or a bottle of wine occasionally out to celebrate a good day. Um, and to try and get everybody uh, eating together, um, you know, around that campfire. Occasionally the guitar would come out, a few songs. That's camaraderie. That's team spirit. That is, yeah, letting people have, letting their hair down after a hard day and have fun. 
And the third thing I would say is that every morning, uh, whatever time we, or before whatever time we set off uh, early because of the desert, you start early and finish early. I, I would gather everybody and that included, um, you know, my direct um, flying colleagues, uh, the support team, truck drivers, the motorcyclists, outrider support team guys, and also the Channel 4 documentary team, which were a band of uh, ruffians and so forth who, who had their own mission as well. I had to bring all these people together, like 16, 17 of us. Um, and every morning, six o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was, I would bring the whole team together. We'd gather in a circle and I would explain as the team leader, you know, well done for, for yesterday, this, that, single out a few few people for, for well dones and thank yous, always very important. Uh, and then just as important is to give them the heads up as to what I had in my mind as the team leader. And it's amazing to, you know, you hear industry bosses and company bosses um, know the plan, but they don't share it with their people. It's so important to keep them on side and to, 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 to let them know, otherwise the old Chinese whispers, you know, go on behind your back. So I would have this circle for 10, 15 minutes, whatever it needed to, you know, regale, re, re, tell, tell them what I thought we needed to do for the day, who was going to do what, and most importantly, did anyone have any questions, any good ideas of what we can do differently, better, or um, smarter um, for, the, for the coming hours and the challenges that lay ahead? Neil, I think you struck on something really important, which I'd like to just dig into for a second. You said, does anybody have any better ideas? Does anybody have any, uh, any questions, any thoughts? How can we do this better? I think as a leader, that's a really important thing. I mean, what you've just said, the strategy there is making it fun, getting together is really important. But I love the idea of how did you, you're obviously the boss, obviously running the show, but you were obviously trying to make yourself one of the boys to to allow them to challenge you and to, is that something you consider it, uh, considered and, and, and wanted to, to relay? Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think it comes from the special forces training, because I remember um, as a junior soldier, you know, sitting in a wood in the middle of nowhere and the the officer quite often, uh, you know, senior rank, not a not an officer, not a commissioned officer would be the man, the man in charge. And, you know, from from that young leader, leadership experience, um, I, I learned that the special forces way is to is is the leader doesn't always have the best ideas mm. and so at the end of each presentation or orders group as we called them uh ordinarily in green army you know the the, the hats regiments that we all know and <laughs> are known about you you get given orders don't you you're going to do this you're going to do that this is what you're going to do this is how you're going to do it special force is very different you know you're you're working out something that's never been done before. Normally, you've got uh, all sorts of interesting intricacies. You're behind enemy lines. Whatever it is, everything is different. Everything is trebly more challenging. And actually, the leader, with all his, his or whatever uh, you know uh, experience, quite often misses the, the 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 trick. And I discovered that it was sometimes the most junior soldier that came up with the the spark of an idea that ended up as the execution of the plan. And so I just followed that through in, in expedition world and, and, you know, my business world as well, actually. Uh, it's a great place to be asking people for, for help. Don't think that you know it all. 
and be you know have have the right mindset to to allow others to shine neil i think that's really interesting from when i put my pre-hospital medical hat on uh, my hems or ambulance hat on and neil and i have talked about this offline as well when we fly into a medical scene when we're when we're called to assist uh, our ground ambulance colleagues one of the uh, things we talk about is we don't want just because we've arrived by helicopter and have bright colored suits we really want to eradicate any sort of perceived even though it's not reality any perceived gradient of, of command or authority because we really are visitors in an environment which is other people's where they are really specialized in you know mvcs what do you call them rtcs in in the uk or whatever scene that might be and if we are not good listeners and we don't integrate ourselves really well into that dynamic situation we are going to miss key information because there's no reason to believe at all that we have the best ideas. It could be any number of the team who are already there who have the idea or the piece of information that we need to make a difference to that patient. And so one of the things Neil and I have talked about over the years is how do we, how do, how do we as HEMS providers integrate ourselves into un, other people's environments to make sure everybody is heard and everybody feels the freedom to speak up and share something that they feel is important. Uh, so this is just this is really fascinating to hear about how you constructed your team and the dynamic to get the best out of everybody. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing all that. It's really interesting. No, it's absolutely uh, absolute pleasure. But um, I would also say that you know the jobs that you guys do um, is pretty special, clearly, and it has um, alignment, I think, with special forces work. Actually, you're working in a small team, dangerous dangerous environment, and most importantly, you know, uh, crises situation. So hats off to you guys. But but I would also say, yes, agree with what your sentiments there. But actually, when people are in shock and they're injured and, you know, there's stuff going on and bad and, and mess in front of you, actually what a lot of people need uh, is that calm leadership and that uh, authoritarian um, position. Right. Would you mind doing this? It's it's it's, you know, quiet leadership. I, ha I love the, 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 the relatively new concept of team leadership, which is where I think um, you have uh, cascading levels of, of good leadership in all uh, areas. So yes, the, the, in your world, the pilot is, is a leader in, a, in his or her own right. Uh, you, the doctor, but then, you know, the, the person putting the, the steps out uh, of the helicopter at the, the hospital at the other end, you know, the, 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 the guy or girl bringing the trolley uh, for for the the patient, you know, everyone has their role. Everyone has their uh, moment to shine, and you know, I think it's 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 just definitely a, t a good team performance that creates mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's particularly interesting as well. I wonder if you have a story that would help us understand that better. But sometimes when you turn up and you do something, sometimes you have to be the leader. Sometimes you can be the follower, and sometimes it's just a point where you just got to do something there and then you have to kind of have that and maybe emotional intelligence to switch between the the, the two phases of, of operation if you like it, it, does that is that something that rings true to you yeah no absolutely i i mean you i was thinking as you as you challenged me to come up with an example and i suppose <laughs> one example would be um you know i'm i'm a reasonably experienced uh, penny farthing instructor <laughs> and i was bringing on some some younger junior instructors 
and you know the temptation when they're messing up in front of your eyes and and uh, you know literally we had one situation with my um, my my young uh, one of my young instructors was demonstrating the 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 use of um, mounting the penny farthing bicycle safely right so so I did a little bit of a, a you know an intro about how to how to do it and uh, Alberto my instructor was going to demonstrate and um, he he mounted in front of eight nervous uh, punters and then crashed into the wall oh now you know what do you do in that situation um you know clearly embarrassing awkward difficult but you've just got to you know it was a mistake and um i could have gone no let me show you how to do it so uh, but but i didn't i i said come on alberto you can do better than that and um you know just uh, have another go. So we did, got it right, and uh, you know we moved on. I, I would like to ask two questions. First question is, how on earth did the the penny farthing thing come about? I mean, so you've done, you know, the Grand Slam, you've climbed mountains, you've flown, driven all sorts of incredible canoed across the Bering Straits, which we'll come to in a minute, nearly at least. Penny farthings. Where on earth did that come from? Where? Uh, yeah, I, was, I would say a bit of curiosity. I, I, I've always loved cycling. Um, in my youth, one of the things I uh, got involved with was um, bicycle polo. And uh, it was a, a pretty leash little sport, um, but, you know, pretty ferocious. And it kind of replaced rugby in the summer for me, which was great. A good contact sport, uh, which is just what I needed, uh, you know, in my early 20s uh, during the summer. I didn't want to play croquet and cricket. You know, um, you wanted some action. So um, Bicycle Polo provided that sort of level of uh, intensity uh, team team sport uh, during the summer. And I, I got quite good. I ended up captaining England for what that's worth, uh, doing some international duties on, on a penny, penny farthing up in trying to beat the Scots and the Irish and the Indians. And it was, yeah, it was good fun. Anyway, 20 years later, I'd, I'd moved on. I'd, I wasn't doing bicycle polo anymore which is small bikes, fixed wheel. But um, I read a piece in the Country Life magazine for those uh, British listeners, <laughs> um, pretty gentrified sort of farming community. And an old boy wrote in about um, how the penny farthing uh, and a picture of big wheel, small wheel uh, was the origins of the bicycle. And, um, you know, it was making a comeback, he said in his letter to the editor. And I thought, Ah, well, that's in interesting. Two two thoughts crossed my mind. Number one, I wonder if I could ride a penny farthing if I could do it. And number two is, assuming I I could teach myself how to ride a penny farthing, why don't we invent the sport of penny farthing polo? So those were the two motivations. And uh, I ordered eight bikes from the states, uh, huge import duties, which I didn't factor into my my cash flow forecast, but I paid it off. Uh, taught myself how to ride, taught my friends and, and acquaintances how to ride. And then anybody who showed any modicum of, of talent, we, uh, we, I put a, a polo mallet in their stick. And we now run uh, twice a year international penny farthing polo matches, uh, what I call the penny farthing Calcutta Cup and others. <laughs> um, Billy, do you, still, do you have real. a world record, something to do with penny farthings and a world record? Yeah, so we did, um, uh, cycling enthusiasts will know that there's a challenge in the UK called Land's End to John O'Groats. It's 900 mm. miles southwest corner, 
bottom of the country to the top of Scotland, northeast uh, corner, uh, John O'Groats. It's 900 miles, and people generally cycle it, cycle it on a um, on a racing bike, don't they? And they take 11, 12 days, something like that. Well, my mad friend David Fox Pitt, who incidentally I persuaded to become uh, Scotland's um, penny filing polo captain <laughs> against me in England, um, decided that we'd for charity ride Land's End to John O'Groats. And it's a mind-numbingly and arse-tinglingly boring, <laughs> painful um, journey. So we were uh, doing that and, um, you know, bored out of my mind doing 90 miles on a penny-farthing Victorian bicycle every day for two weeks. And, um, to ease the boredom, I taught myself how to ride the damn thing with without using my hands on the steering wheel, you know, <laughs> the, the handlebars. And it was a skill that nobody had uh, tried because it's, inherently dangerous <laughs> flying a helicopter blindfold and um because you've got direct drive on the front wheel and every time you thrust mm. your uh, you know foot down on the right pedal the uh, the torque as you'll know neil uh you know swings the bike left and right and any sensible uh pilot of a penny farthing will immediately fear their life and grab the handlebars well I have no fear in that department. What could what could possibly go wrong? Only a few broken bones. So I literally refused to grab the uh, the handle, and eventually I learnt how to uh, ride a penny farthing at various speeds and uh, with no hands. And yes, uh, eventually Guinness World Records discovered my talent <laughs> and invited me to uh, to pitch for three three Guinness World Records. One was outright speed with no hands. One was um, the furthest distance, um, or the fastest distance you could travel no-handed, riding a penny farthing 10 kilometers. And the <laughs> hardest one was riding the furthest distance in one hour without touching the handlebars. Unbelievable. Awesome. Awesome. I think so. My second question was back to Alberto, if, if I may, Neil. Uh, oh, you yeah. mentioned Alberto and, and his um, uh, uh, comeuppance to failure. It's a big part of, of, of probably what we all do and, and come across every now and then. You know, we do fail and it's not easy. And, and you've done some things which are seemingly impossible. And you can't have been successful all the time. How, how do you cope with failure? What's, what's your strategy for, for dealing with failure? Um, it's to not dwell on it. And secondly, to go again. Mm -hmm. So a couple of good examples. Um, Actually, three examples, all, I think, related to mountains, um, which can be tricky, as you might well know. So Everest, um, first attempt to climb uh, Mount Everest, um, coincided with the worst storm in 100 years. Mm. Disaster. Many people died. I uh, got stuck for two days uh, above the, you know, the death zone. Not a pleasant experience. Uh, failure. Uh, but two years later, I was back on the mountain having another go and succeeded. Uh, we had um, a few years after that, we then went to um, go for the world's highest black tie dinner party, which involved climbing halfway up Everest, <laughs> setting a, a, a table white, a tablecloth, candles, flowers, um, champagne, port, uh, you know, all the, all the trimmings, and sitting down in um, black tie, or the Americans call it dicky bow, I think, don't they? Or <laughs> I think like tux. And um, having tux, that's it, having a, a, a dinner party 
at 7,000 meters halfway up Mount Everest. Um, unfortunately, the first year we did it, 2015, coincided with uh, the earthquake um, that killed, devastated mm -hmm. Nepal and killed Terror. thousands and thousands of people. It was a terrible tragedy and obviously we had to abandon. But the result, go back. Three years later, we was back on the mountain uh, giving it uh, another a go. And final example, two years ago, I was attempting with a team to uh, extract from the Germans, well, two German climbers um, who have currently the, uh, the, holding the world record for the highest bicycle ride, not on a penny farthing, normal mountain bikes. There's an opportunity. I, I took a team to Nepal, a different mountain, uh, wrecked it, and we were trying to uh, get to the top of this peak and cycle down. And we were stopped by really appalling weather. I had to be evacuated off the mountain. And yes, you've guessed it. This very September, I am taking another team back to the same mountain to have another go. So there you are. Don't you be dependent. Don't, uh, don't give up. And make a plan for a second attempt, third attempt, whatever it takes. That's, I was going to ask, actually, what, what's next? So thank you, Dave. Yeah, so I want to tack on to that. Uh, uh, if we can just dive into and unwrap a little bit about fear and fear management, because one of the things I just, I just actually uh, got through, I can't remember which chapter, chapter 12, maybe, or nine lives that uh, you describe uh, in, in your most recent book. But when I listen to all of your adventure stories, there's real risk involved in many of the things you have done. And the thing that's really always captured my imagination and that I'm fascinated by that I'd just like to sort of maybe use as just one example would be your ascent of Mount Everest. And what you've described in your book is that at the time when you were first summiting in the late 90s, the statistics for the ratio of successful summits to death was six to one. And that is a number when I hear that is just incredible, incredible from the from the risk. And as I think you you describe it's the the Russian roulette. The the is that right? The six the six chambers and which one has the bullet. It's almost like playing that quote game. How do you? How do you manage your mindset to do such risky things, not only once, but to go back and do it again? And as you said, on your first ascent, it wasn't successful and you spent two days above the death zone, which just to say the word in itself tells us how risky that is. But you come down, you're safe, you're successful, and then you go back for another attempt, fully aware of the statistics, fully aware of the people that you've passed on the mountain that have not survived, and yet you have the fortitude to go through and do it again. Is is fear something that, I, I mean, I'm just going to ask the frank question, is fear something you experience? And if it is, is it something that you, <laughs> no, I'm genuinely curious, or is it something that you have an innate natural ability to manage, or have you learned how to manage fear over the years to be able to push through that barrier to accomplish your goal? Sure. I think, um, as Neil often told me whilst I was flying his helicopter, you you lunatic Lawton, um, you know, if you're fearless, you are a lunatic. You know, there is no two ways about it. So I think, you know, you see these uh, 
ridiculous climbs that the solo um, climbers do um, without ropes. You know, it's just uh, spine-chillingly um, uh, awful. What I mean, I can't. I can sometimes I can't watch it. Um, you know, they're doing the most dangerous thing. I, I honestly, when you compare all the things that I've done, they none of them compare with some of the stuff that people specialize in. Um, but I also think there's an element of, of uh, missing missing cog in the brain, actually, you know, for, for some of the stuff that some humans do. I honestly, I mean, yes, climbing Mount Everest is, 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 is difficult, it's hard. Uh, yes, statistically it's dangerous, but then you've got to think through the stats. Okay, um, you know, when you look at, when you look in detail, what you discover is that there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people um, who've been up Mount Everest that never climbed another mountain in their life. They've just gone for that one mountain. They've been guiding all the way to the top. There's a lot of people, um, yes, caught out by you know, an avalanche or fell in a crevasse. Um, but I think what I'm saying is that there's 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 a lot of people with not an awful lot of um, experience. And so if you have had, as I have had, and Everest definitely wasn't my first mountain, you know, I'd learned to climb in the Marines as a 19-year-old, um, took myself off to all sorts of mountain ranges to hone my skills. I was confident of climbing mountains and surviving and, and being one of the five and successful climbers to stay alive. And it was always going to be somebody else, uh, probably with less experience, that was going to succumb to that stat. And so it's not about not having fear. Sure, you you know it's dangerous, but you do everything in your powers to to make it safe. You you set off three o'clock in the morning in the in the uh, the ice fall when it's least dangerous. Uh, you. Uh, build up your experience of, of alpine climbing before you tackle Everest, etc. And so, you know, it's it's a question of uh, facing the fears. Yes, being uh, having the courage to, to 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 take the first step and to decide that you're going to do it, but also knowing your limitations. I was invited to to climb K2, which is a even has got even worse stats, and there are plenty of other mountains that have a uh, you know have got much worse death rate. Uh, I think Annapurna is actually statistically the worst. Um, I've climbed lots of mountains, but I, you know, I decided not to climb K2 because I didn't think that I had enough mm. experience to, to, I might be that one in four, one in five, mm. one in six um, on that mountain, because that was for me, it's a bit like, you know, asking me to, to, to land a helicopter in, in on, on, on a rooftop. Neil can do it, but this Neil can't. And <laughs> it's, it's a good, it's a good um, lesson to know, you know, what your limit is and what your limitations are. Yeah. yeah. Although you did land a helicopter on a rooftop, Bear Grylls rooftop, if I remember. Oh, you've got a good memory. Were you, were you uh, an instructor when we did that? Yes, I was. Ah, yes. He still hasn't forgiven me, Bear Grylls. Um, for the listeners, um, Bear has a few few nice properties around the world now, but... Um, Back in the day, he had a little uh, flat roof cottage on an island in Wales. Um, and we were just doing some mountain flying, weren't we, Neil? And, and I said, That's your Bear Grylls' island over there. Look, there's his white house. Let's go and see if he's in. And um, to be fair, Neil, uh, instructor Neil here, 
took the controls and landed the thing on the roof, but I jumped out and took a photograph, sent it to him by text, and he's never really uh, forgiven me. <laughs> he's got he's to dine out on that story, and so should we all. I think that's a very funny thing to do. It's good for you. Hey, listen, hey, listen back, to, back to preparation, fear, um, and, and being those statistics. I think your trip to the Bering Straits, going out on the Bering Straits, I think we talk about fear, we talk about um, getting to a point where you have to make a decision. And I think there is a spectrum. I think your your definition of fear is different than mine, and the guy who flies, who, who climbs up El Capitan without a rope is he's at the next level. Yeah. So for you to, to go and be prepared and knowing in yourself that you, you where your limits are is, is very clever. But, but the Bering Straits trip was a bit of a challenge. Can you tell us a bit about that? I, I think you were describing a trip that was um, a mother of all ups. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's, let's be honest. The Bering Strait mission wasn't my finest hour. But uh, on the on the upside, it wasn't my idea. Uh, I joined uh, um, my my friend James, whose idea it was, and it was a bit last minute. I, I you know, whilst it, it it panned out pretty badly, in so much that um, we made a number of mistakes. So we were attempting to cross the Bering Sea or the Bering Strait in winter, which of course ordinarily should be um, full of pack ice still a really challenging environment and we didn't take it lightly you know we had the the right equipment we had the the right experience both of us had climbed everest a few times etc um and, and, and lots of other missions so I th i'd like to think we had the right um you know we had we stood it as a as a two-man team the right credentials to have a go at this challenge um for me the the, the mission was to to do that but also it was a bit of fun we talked about fun earlier i um I, I had joined the, the mission principally uh, for the aim of being uh, and organizing the first game of five-a-side football on the ice on the international dateline. And the idea was, and I had a football deflated in my, in my canoe um, to blow up uh, so that we could challenge the Russians on the international dateline uh, to a game of five-a-side football, ice football. And, and, and the, the thing that really motivated me was the fact that that one game which of course we do for charity, um, you know, the, the same game, one team would be playing the same game on the Friday and the other team would be playing it on the Saturday. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. So that was, uh, that was the reason why I was on this trip uh, and also to see a, a beautiful part of the world. But James and I, we set off. I, I had contracted a flu virus, so I wasn't on top shape. Um, we had a, a tight time frame. We just went for it. Uh, I remember sitting on our canoes on top of our kits, dressed in the Arctic gear with a couple of paddles. And I'm thinking to myself, is this a sensible <laughs> idea? What we're about to do, uh, I did have the foresight to, I mean, it was fast flowing currents in front of us. And so we, we roped up because we didn't want to be uh, tackling the straight um, minus 40 degrees centigrade on our own solo, unsupported. So we tied our canoes together. I launched in first expecting James to follow, which he did. And then we were to paddle um, furiously forwards, uh, you know, to avoid the current as much as possible, get on an ice flow, which obviously is going to be traveling far less quickly, and then sled haul like Ranulph finds across the ice to get to our destination, which was, I don't know, 50 miles away. Anyway, um, 
15 hours later, we were still paddling, Neil and Dave. <laughs> well, we, uh, the, plan, the plan had gone um, to shit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we found ourselves way off course, you know, having been dragged five knots current uh, through the strait. Couldn't find our icebergs and our uh, ice flows. And so we were in, in, in Poo Corner. About eight o'clock at night, um, 15 hours later, we were, uh, you know, we were still powering away, trying to get out of our, our predicament, but the sea literally froze around us. So whilst there was no mm. iceberg, the, the sea actually froze at night, you know, it, it was, it was, uh, but it froze to a point where it was impossible to canoe through, kayak through, but when you tried to stand up on the damn thing, you'd just go through and that, that was no good. And what I would call uh, in chess, uh, you reach the state of yes. checkmate. <laughs> Certainly have. So, of course, um, it's it's dark, but I, I pick up the satellite phone and, and we've prepared. We know the numbers for uh, the various agencies. Number one option is a local helicopter rescue. Um, we tell them. I ring up um, Kodiak Island, the, um, the U.S. Coast Guard uh, Marine Rescue Service and inform them, the duty officer, that, you know, we're in a spot of trouble. Um, and we all agree that we'll call again at, uh, in the morning if we're still alive. So anyway, James and I, we, we, we canoe up together side by side. We can't put a, a cooker on. We can't uh, drink anything, frozen water. Can't eat anything apart from a Mars bar or whatever. But we survived the night. Pretty miserable. Uh, daylight, I'm, I'm back on the phone, the sat phone to the emergency services. Uh, and our situation, we've we've recorded our position. We're we're drifting, no prospect. The the, the same conditions. We're not going to be able to get to our destination, I, and and it's quite clear. My experience tells me that. So it's then a question of you know what now, and you know one had to realise reasonably quickly, because otherwise we'd be beyond the help of of rescue and floating towards the North Pole and inevitable impending slow miserable cold death. So I, um, I I just informed very casually and calmly the uh, the, the, the Kodiak Island, the first uh, helicopter guys, the weather's not good enough for them to come out. They can't help us. But our only, um, you know, uh, help is going to be the Kodiak Island guys. And we're reaching a point where it's beyond their um, limitations of, 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 of flying and so forth. Um, so we make a decision pretty quickly. Yes, please. We'd like uh, a rescue. Thank you very much. Failure. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> failure is better than certain death. So no qualms. They very uh, generously said, um, stand by. And literally eight hours later, C-130 Hercules comes over, lobs out a canister with a, with a VHF radio and a food pack of an American supply. And um, I go out, crawl on my belly to go and retrieve it, speak to the pilot. Two helicopters come in, Jayhawks. And um, the, 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 the Marine guy comes down on the, the wire and then uh, we're really grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And he unclips. He's got all the gear on. He unclips and he, he starts walking towards us. I said, no, don't unclip. It's, you know, it's not safe. The ice is thin. He, he, he has this confident look on his face. And then all of a sudden he disappears <laughs> under the ice. And it up like a seal. Uh, with a really surprised look on his, in his face. You know, he thought he knew uh, the ice, but he didn't. Um, but anyway, he'd got all the gear. So he popped up. Uh, Reclipped onto the uh, onto the the wire and then um, got us both into the basket and and away. 
And uh, yeah, we were rescued by the US uh, uh, Coast Guard. And I was terrified of getting a, a quarter of a million dollar uh, rescue <laughs> bill. But it's a military service and it was free. Very good. Not only that, not only that, they said that you were um, exceptionally well prepared, knew what you guys were doing, and therefore there was no problem at all to, to come and rescue you guys. And I think that's where the lessons lie, I think, for me, Neil, is that knowing where that point is, using your experience to go, you know, we're not going to go much further from this, being so well prepared that even though you are stuck there, you have the resources to... to survive the night and contact the right people and make the right calls to get out there. I think they're the lessons to learn. So you might think it's a failure. I think that's a really important lesson for us all. Yeah, that's my takeaway from that story as well. I just want to unwrap one more layer, if I may. When you were in that canoe and the sea was semi-frozen, it was getting dark. You said it was minus 40, some extreme temperature. Obviously, the successful outcome of getting out of that and getting rescued is as Neil just said, testament to your experience, your knowledge, your preparation. You had all the right pieces in place for a backup plan. But can I ask, was there a moment or moments or time when you internally had a dialogue of, we're really in the shit and we may not see tomorrow morning and this might be it? Or was that does that mindset and that negative self-talk not really enter your mind? Like, again, I feel like that could be a very overwhelming situation for many people. And maybe it was manageable to you because of what you said earlier, which is you didn't go into that as an inexperienced adventurer. You had a lot of experience to build on and prepare for. But there's also part of me that thinks other people may have literally folded in the pressure in the environment of what was coming in around them and the whole thing being completely overwhelming. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think um, there's no point in, in lying. I, I, I would say that, yes, I had my moments where I thought, you know, this could be it. And um, I wonder what it's like to slowly freeze to death um, with, with, without any prospect of, uh, of rescue. And yes, th that crossed my mind a, a few times during the night. But, you know, part of the, the uh, you know, thing about good leadership is that you certainly wouldn't uh, articulate that uh, in public, I, mm. I think, particularly, I mean, maybe afterwards, but not at the moment. You know, when you're yeah. in a crisis, as, as you guys know, you know, you've got to stay strong. You've got to show uh, leadership. You've got to um, keep busy. And I think one of the beauties uh, and the advantages of, of being a leader is that you've got this extra responsibility uh, to to be positive and to have an optimistic outlook and to spend your time not worrying about the consequences of freezing to death, but actually thinking creatively about how the hell you're going to get out of the problem. And um, you know the, uh, the 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 lovely stories from history, you know, spring to mind where you know the, you, you read the stories of Scott Amundsen and and Shackleton. I'm doing a talk at the moment. Mm. Uh, it's called in the footsteps of heroes. So this stuff is is all quite relevant, you know, fresh in my mind. And and a lovely quote I've got it here actually, because I was preparing a, a talk and um, that lovely quote by uh, Sir Raymond Priestley, who was on uh, I think Shackleton's expedition, one of them. He said, "For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, give me Shackleton." 
And um, it's a lovely, lovely quote. And it, it, you know, it just reminds you that, um, yes, the punchline is, of course, Shackleton was the great leader. He had an awful experience with, with a team of 27 sailors um, and Arctic explorers to try to get to the South Pole. Disastrous uh, mission. Ship sank and they were left for two, two years to try and extricate themselves. You know, a wonderful story of, of heroic leadership. And uh, Shackleton, for me, is one of, one of the great stories of, of when disaster strikes. You've got to remain positive, optimistic, show all sorts of incredible good leadership skills to keep people from uh, disintegrating and, and, you know, into depths of depression and ultimately death. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really good. Good advice. I think that's very helpful for whatever field people are in. In adverse situations, true leaders maintain a positivity and an infectiousness to, to try and see the the way out, the solution, and not capitulate to the negativity which drives everybody down. I think there's. I think that's really important to hear all of that. So uh, yeah, thank you. And I'll add the other angle, which is that the leaders have extra responsibility, which may be in the distraction. You know, I don't have to think about myself. I've got to think about everybody else right. and the problems. And it's a, nearly a distraction and more things to consider than just themselves. I think that's a really important thing to take away as well. Neil, it's, uh, I, did, I just want to, sorry to just t go a little tangential for a minute, but actually what you just said there reminds me of a conversation we had about your Sahara Marathon, your ultramarathon that you ran. And I, I remember you telling me that one of your coping strategies for getting through these sequential marathons in the desert was having that buddy that you were running for rather than running for yourself. And, and you found that people who were very successful had that other mission of providing support uh, for somebody else. It was like when it became bigger than oneself for other people, the entire mission became easier to accomplish. That was a few years ago, but uh, but I think uh, nothing pales into insignificance compared to Neil's crazy, crazy uh, excess. <laughs> hey, Neil, I, I did just want to mention, if I may, before we finish off, because we've taken too much of your time already, is that there's something genius uh, about your book, which is that, that the lessons learned and the reflections, and I don't think many people have done that in books before now. So, so clearly it's an amazing read and, and really digging into how you've done things, the psychology of, of your success, et cetera. But every, every chapter there, there's lessons, what I learned from that specific thing. And I think that's really generous and I think it's brilliant. It's, it's nearly a, a book that you can just look at and, and, and just pick up and just go, I need to understand how I can do this better. And then the reflections at the end are brilliant. So I think that's a really, really clever thing. And it's a really enjoyable read. The Adventureholic. Well, that's very kind. Um, thank you. It's it's the one and only book I shall write. So uh, I I tried to get it uh, as I wanted it. I wrote it uh, to you know because there's some fun stories in there, but also you know to encourage people with kind of stuff that we've been talking about. You know to not be frightened of living a, a full life and and to really show people, particularly at the end of each chapter, you know the mistakes that I made, some of which we've revealed tonight. Um, but, but also encourage people to to be more adventurous and have that adventurous mindset, which which I like to encourage people to have. Um, and it wasn't really, a, a, I think, a, a book about uh, glorifying my my career in in the wilds. Um, but it was more about um, sharing some of the fun stories, the the revelations, and the the inspiration behind some of this stuff, and the rewards that you get, uh, you know, of having an adventurous mindset. 
and the things that you can achieve, uh, you know, going from ordinary. And if there was anybody that to be described as ordinary, I'm it. Uh, to do the odd occasional extraordinary. It is about having, you know, uh, a little bit of curiosity and courage and energy and enthusiasm to get out and do it. Um, and I, there's another quote I like. Do you know um, Anatoly Bukreev, who's the now sadly passed away, but he was um, the guy rescuing all the people um, on Everest in 1996 during that horrific a uh, two-day storm on the mountain that killed eight people and injured many, many more. And uh, he wrote a book, really, to defend himself because he was criticized because he was, um, you know, he was climbing as a guide, um, all these punters uh, from the American team, uh, without oxygen. And that was his, that was his mantra. He, he was a, a Kazakhstanian, Kazakhstanian Russian climber, hugely strong, experienced, courageous, a guy and uh he came knocking on my tent in the morning uh, after the night of the worst of the storm and said i've been out all night trying to help my colleagues but i can't find them all can you help and you know it was the first we knew of the problem really uh, we'd hunkered down and we were looking after and keeping ourselves alive and my team alive but we had no concept that there were 30 people missing uh you know presumed at that moment dead uh, in on top of everything else and um so out we went, and this this guy Anatoly is a, a real hero. So he wrote this book, and then one of the quotes in it, he said um, he said the following: um, "Mountains are not stadiums where I satisfy my ambition to achieve; they are the cathedrals where uh, where I practice my religion." And really, that sums up why I think I wrote this book, Adventureholic. Um, Extraordinary Journeys on Seven Continents by Land, Sea and Air, for that very uh, reason. Uh, Neil, it's like a field guide to, to being an adventurer and being brave and being fearless and strong and courageous, etc. It's, it's a field guide to that, and, and people should get yeah. it. Brilliant. So thank you so much. We'll put a link to that book in the show notes for the episode so that people can find that. And if they would like to dig into your adventures, that, like you said, we've Talk, touched on in this conversation they can really delve into those in detail i can tell you neil i had a lot of fun i listened uh to your to your sky car story from your book and uh it was i had a wild time going from there to youtube to find the channel four show to actually see it in person because well, i what i wanted to see more than anything was that moment you were had to stand on the side of the car to balance it as you were out over the ocean uh so it's a terrific it's a terrific read great stories and I would highly encourage everybody to uh, to delve into your expeditions more uh, through the book. So, yep, we'll put a link in the show notes. Cheers. Perfect. Hey, listen, we, we should probably do a part two. There's just so much more to talk about. But, Neil, we so appreciate your time. Uh, a little longer than, than normal. It's been fascinating. It's been brilliant. We've learned loads, and uh, we really appreciate it and hope we can catch up again soon. Well, I'm genuinely surprised you've learned anything. Um, but if you have and your <laughs> listeners have gained anything from it, I'm, I would be delighted. And it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Chief Thanks. Instructor Neil Jeffers and Dave. <laughs> uh, we are grateful beyond belief. Neil, lovely to meet you. Uh, thank you so much. And good luck in your future endeavors. Please stay safe. Thanks, guys. Wow, Neil, what a conversation. What an amazing individual. Thanks for getting 
Neil Lawton onto the O2X podcast. Uh, we're really grateful for that. I loved that conversation. You know, I think he, he is, is the, the key. And I think he is the, the, the person that, that personifies ordinary to extraordinary. I mean, he, he said it himself. And it was just mm -hmm. uh, the stuff he's done and the, the, the courage, the resilience, et cetera. Um, oh, we, I think we should do it part two. I mean, he's had so many things yeah. we could still talk about. His views on leadership and uh, fear, et cetera, is, is next level. It's brilliant. Yeah. And also, isn't he just the perfect example of how you take an idea, however extreme it may seem, and turn it into a reality? Absolutely right. I and mean, I'd never heard it clearly because it's his own thing, the Vista uh, concept there genius as well so uh, people should look that up that's a, a great thing yeah so that was what uh vision innovation strategy attitude and team those components really help forge an idea into a successful project uh with a good outcome exactly slightly different order but that's yeah. exactly it yeah, I may have just done a, a V stats, <laughs> not a Vista. But yes, I know I think, what you mean, uh, but they're still the things you need. What about um let's just let's just bring home and uh, pull together his leadership lessons because I think there's some really valuable insights there into 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 high quality leadership. Yeah, and I think for the other people we have spoken to, I think there are some threads that run through and I I love it that, that making it fun, keeping it fun. I think mm. that helps camaraderie getting everybody together he mentioned having team brief briefings and i think it was excellent right and then different types of leader in different situations so sometimes people need somebody to um, show the direction make a decision uh, but sometimes the leader doesn't have the best ideas and the best thing he can do as a leader is bring the ideas out of every member of the team and make sure everybody is heard well, we are starting to hear now this this concept, team leadership, which is not leadership in itself, it's team leadership. And that's the idea that, uh, you know, different people have different strengths and it's the, it's the, the team that leads. So it's, mm. an, it's an interesting new idea. And I think it's, um, and you're right, some people are going to have the right ideas and some people are not. And I was very interested in his strategies and management of fear. Uh, so it seems to come down for him to making balanced, well-informed decisions within one's perceived capabilities based on experience, but also really good preparation, which I guess also comes back to experience, knowing what you need to be well-prepared. But probably one of his uh, stickiest situations was out there in the uh, Bering Sea, but they had enough foresight and experience to put secondary plans in place to get them out of really quite a tough spot. I think that's the point. You know, I think we talked about fear and, and you know, the spectrum of fear and, and, you know, his definition is very different to mine, et cetera. But, but, but knowing in himself that he's so prepared for every eventuality that he's less fearful, less worried about the outcome because yeah. he knows he's prepared to that extent. And I think making that decision at the right time to say, you know, this is the point we have to, we have to stop. It was the right thing. As I said, you know, the Coast Guard were, were, were brilliant. They said, you know, these guys are so well prepared. We've got no problem picking up these guys. It's the, the other guys that, that don't that do it wrong. All right. Well, I think that is another great conversation in the books. Plenty of lessons learned. Anything else for us? No, you know, that is totally it. I think that's excellent. We should, we should go away and think about that. And we're looking forward to the next person. It's a wrap. 
All right. Sounds good now. Next time. Well done. Thank you.